Welcome to this episode of ORP. Uh, for today's episode, we'll be talking about one of the breakthrough action comedies of the 1980s, the legendary film Ghostbusters. Uh, this movie made a huge impact when it hit in 1984, and it's still a beloved classic even after all these decades. Um, this was a film that I grew up with and watched numerous times on the home video, uh, enough that I can still quote many of the classic lines even to this day. Uh, but how about you, Mike? Uh, do you have a story with Ghostbusters, and what was your history with the film? I first saw Ghostbusters over at my cousin's house in 1985 when it came out on home video. And I have to say that watching it with my cousins really added to the experience. Uh, but I but I immediately loved it. It was super funny. And I loved the paranormal aspect of it, even if I didn't know what it was at the time. I, I hadn't really considered it before, but... You know how kids' movies are made so that the adults taking him to see the movie can be entertained as well? Well... I think Ghostbusters is a movie made for adults so that kids can be entertained as well. I can only assume that this is the case with all kids, but when I was a kid, if a movie was made for adults, it made it all the more awesome to see it. Uh, but I will dig more into that a bit later. Anyway, I, I have remained a big fan over the years, and I even celebrate Ghostbusters Day on June 8th most years. I also quote many lines from the Ghostbusters to this day, and I have since I was a boy. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to dig into this one. So what do you say we dive into the conception of the Ghostbusters and the writing process, Steve? Uh, that sounds like a good idea to me. Uh, the, the story of Ghostbusters began with Dan Aykroyd, who was inspired by his family history. His great-grandfather had been involved in the paranormal, and the Ackroyds had spent generations in the study of unexplained phenomena, including spirits. Uh, Ackroyd's father had actually written a book on the subject of the paranormal called A History of Ghosts. In fact, it's even possible that his father's book was an influence on the film's occult books uh, like Tobin's Spirit Guide. Hmm. That, that's pretty cool, actually. I, I was kind of wondering about Tobin's Spirit Guide. Um, I, I had looked it up and found that you can actually pick up a copy of that fictional book. There's there's even a special Ghostbusters edition of it. <laughs> mm. But let me, let me elaborate on the Aykroyd family history that went into the script and, and that book a little bit. Uh, Dan Aykroyd was inspired to write the Ghostbusters script from a few different sources. The main one being Aykroyd's belief in the paranormal, which Steve just mentioned. Steve said that the Aykroyd family has been into paranormal research going back as far as his great-grandfather, but let me lay that path out for you. Dan's great-grandfather was Dr. Samuel Augustus Aykroyd. According to A History of Ghosts, Samuel actually came into his interest in the paranormal through dentistry. Uh, mm. Dr. Aykroyd received his Doctor of Dental Surgery degree in the early 1890s, and to say that things were still in experimental stages is an understatement. Uh, during the latter 19th century, there were a few methods of pain control to administer during dental sur surgery. Believe it or not, 
hypnotism was one of the prescribed methods of pain management. It seems that this line of research sparked Samuel's curiosity about that type of mental state that hypnosis brings about. And he wondered whether that trance-like state could allow a person to become a conduit for the dead to communicate with the living. This idea was relatively new at the time and one called spiritualism. Samuel kept journals detailing his explorations with ghosts from 1905 to 1933, recording the events of about 80 seances. Holding such meetings regularly made Dr. Aykroyd a renowned spiritualist. The fascination with the paranormal was picked up by Dr. Aykroyd's son, Maurice Aykroyd. Maurice, with the help of his son, Peter Aykroyd, tried to build a radio device that would replace the use of mediums as a means of capturing the voice of the dead or ghosts. Peter Aykroyd had watched the and attended some of the Dr. Samuel Aykroyd's seances when he was very young, so he was somewhat familiar with the process. Maurice and Peter worked on this device together until the ghosts themselves told Maurice that building such a device was not possible. However, Peter's interest in the subject matter was not dissuaded, especially after inheriting his grandfather's journals and massive library of spiritual literature. So it was that the Aykroyd family paranormal investigation was picked up by Peter Aykroyd after the death of Maurice, and it was Peter Aykroyd that wrote the book A History of Ghosts. But it was not just Dan Aykroyd's father that was interested in parapsychology. Dan's mother claimed to have seen ghosts as well. This, of course, brings us to Dan Aykroyd himself. Apparently, Gozer was a name related to a documented haunting in England that we talked about in our Conjuring Universe episode. The name Gozer appeared mysteriously throughout the Einfield Poltergeist house, written on walls and other things. As a quick side note, the jail scene uh, was filmed in a prison that was reportedly haunted, and the dailies ended up with scratches all over them with no apparent physical cause. Ivan Reitman was concerned about returning there, and the crew was very relieved to find enough footage to complete the scene without having to return. But back to Aykroyd. In 1981, Aykroyd read an article in Quantum Physics and Parapsychology in the Journal of American Society for Psychical Research, which gave him the idea of trapping ghosts. Again, in the typical Aykroyd way, Dan was looking to combine science and tech with the paranormal. He was also drawn to the idea of modernizing the comedic ghost films of the mid-20th century by comics such as Abbott and Costello in Hold That Ghost from 1941, Bob Hope in The Ghost Breakers from 1940 and the Bowery Boys and Ghost Chasers from 1951. That's right. It was an old school ghost comedy with a new spin. To move on to your other points, it is a bit surprising when you look into how science is used to be connected to occult studies. Uh, this is how alchemy ended up being a thing hundreds of years ago, for example. But I don't think I'd have guessed that you'd have gotten science and spiritualism together, even as recently as the 19th century, and certainly not with dentistry, may I add. Um, it is interesting that the name Gozer was related to a real haunting, though. Um, the Sumerian connection sounded like it was made up, so I figured Gozer was an invention as well. But given Dan Aykroyd's deep family connections to spiritualism, I should have guessed there should have been some truth to the idea. But um, let's move back to the 20th century for a bit. Uh, Dan Aykroyd wanted to write a paranormal comedy uh, involving his own Saturday Night Live cohorts, including John Belushi and Eddie Murphy. In fact, uh, Aykroyd wrote the original draft of the script of Ghostbusters for himself, Belushi as Peter Venkman, and Murphy as Winston Zedmore. The idea, original idea was that Ghostbusters would be set in the future, where Ghostbusters were commonplace, and according to uh, Medjack, uh, their characters would be treated more or less like lumbers. 
That's true. In the original script, Ghostbusters would have been a dime a dozen, and there there would have really been nothing special about the main character's profession in that respect. It was actually Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis's idea to show the Ghostbusters how the Ghostbusters got started rather than starting the film after the profession had already been established. It was director Ivan Reitman's idea to focus on one group of Ghostbusters who worked out of a station like firemen. Uh, Dan Aykroyd's original version of the script began began with the Ectomobile flying out of the Ghostbusters HQ. Uh, According to Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis in the DVD commentary, in Dan Aykroyd's original rough draft of the movie, the Ghostbusters were like paramedics and firefighters, which is why the Ghostbusters HQ was actually a firehouse in the film. Before the movie went in that direction, a number of things happened that changed Aykroyd's original plan. In the first place, John Belushi passed away, unfortunately, while Aykroyd was in the middle of the first draft of the script. Um, According to Aykroyd, he actually was writing lines for Belushi when he got the call that uh, Belushi had passed away. Um, Eventually, the Belushi influence shifted over to the Slimer character, and Aykroyd had to rewrite the the draft since Belushi could no longer be involved. But uh, Aykroyd had a solution to that, didn't he, Mike? He did, actually. Um, After Belushi's death, Aykroyd turned to his friend Bill Murray, who accepted the role with no formal contract. But Bill Murray did eventually agree to do Ghostbusters if Columbia financed the remake of The Razor's Edge from 1946 with him as the star. The remake was made and released the same year as Ghostbusters. But here's the thing. Nobody even heard back from Bill Murray after after that for quite a while. They kept asking, so is Bill going to come? And Aykroyd kept assuring him that he would, knowing, of course, that this behavior was commonplace for Murray. But I think even Dan was getting nervous until Bill Murray actually showed up at 8 a.m. on day one of principal photography. Uh, but director Ivan Reitman wasn't even sure if Murray had read the script. And my guess is that he might have even given it a cursory glance, uh, but certainly didn't memorize it. Uh, but but I will get into that in more detail later. Uh, but while it was still uncertain whether Murray would even show up, Michael Keaton, Chevy Chase, uh, Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Steve Gutenberg, and Richard Pryor were also considered for the role of Bankman. Uh, Steve Gutenberg ultimately turned down the role of Peter Vankman to star in 1984's Police Academy, which is understandable. It's a very popular series. Uh, Michael Keaton turned down the role of Peter Vankman as well. Chevy Chase turned down the role, but he turned it down because of the rewrites. Uh, Chase said that the original script was very dark and much scarier, and he didn't like the direction of the, re- the revised script had taken. You know, I'll be honest, I can't see anybody but Bill Murray as Venkman now. Uh, that casting list included some of the best comedic actors of that time. But even then, I can't see any of them embodying Venkman's deadpan kind of snark. Also, it's interesting that both Murray and Chevy Chase auditioned for Venkman, considering that they famously had a fist fight backstage on SNL in 1978. I am not making this up, I swear. According to Murray, their relationship improved since then, and they even uh, co-starred together in Caddyshack in 1980. You know, I, I agree. Uh, Bankman may have been written for Belushi, but I, I think that Murray was the better choice there. And I, too, cannot picture someone else in that role. Also, <laughs> I had no idea that Jason Murray got into a fistfight backstage in 1978. If I'm honest, I would have paid to see that because I can't honestly imagine either of them in a fistfight. <laughs> but I, I would actually be wrong. Uh, Chevy Chase had actually done some boxing, and Bill Murray was a tough kid from Chicago who had definitely been in his share of scraps. Anyway, I I have to wonder if the filmmakers were not telling people that addition for the part that they would only be cast if Murray didn't show up. Uh, But I believe you had a bit
bit to add about that. Did you, Steve? I do, in fact. It's interesting that you mentioned the fact that nobody knew if Bill Murray would show up for work on time. <laughs> Bill Murray had a history of being erratic on previous films, including previous Reitman films like Stripes. Uh, and even his close friends like Aykroyd were never quite sure what he would do. Um, I'm also not surprised by the ad-libbing, um, though in Murray's case, it surprisingly worked. Some of his ad-libs famously became iconic lines, such as, we came, we saw, we kicked its ass, <laughs> after uh, trapping Slimer at the hotel. Um, but speaking of Slimer, I think you had something to add, Mike? I do, Steve. Um, if I could comment on the whole Slimer-Belushi thing for a minute. Uh, though never referred to in the script, the green ghost from the hotel was actually called Onion Head by the crew because of its horrid smell. Uh, there was actually a scene where the ghost haunted two newlyweds that revealed his horrid smell, uh, but it was cut. Uh, the name Slimer was not actually used until it was created for the real Ghostbusters from 1986, based on Bankman's line, he's slimy. The only other name given to the ghost on set was the ghost of John Belushi. That name actually came from Dan Aykroyd himself in memory of his friend who succumbed to drug use before he could star in this blockbuster. Onion Head's gluttonous eating was actually based on Belushi's cafeteria scene in National Lampoon's Animal House from 1978. The, the funny thing about this is that the special effects designers didn't get the memo about Slimer looking like Belushi until late in the design process. So the design team had a look for Slimer that was more or less in place, um, basically until uh, they were told to go for the Belushi look. And as it turned out, the design team went with their existing concept and told Eichmann, Aykroyd, and Reitman that they had changed it. So nobody noticed or complained about it, and they all thought that Slimer looked like Belushi. <laughs> That, that that is hilarious. I, I I guess that goes to show, I mean, either the power of suggestion or how little they were paying attention in the first place. They saw what they expected to see. <laughs> right, right. Uh, however, however, there was some spectacular timing involved in actually getting Ghostbusters made at all. In 1982, Ivan Reitman, Joe Medjick, and Michael C. Gross were planning on making a film of the sci-fi novel The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Medjick and Gross were considering Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd to play Ford Prefect. Ackroyd sent them his ideas for Ghostbusters and they decided to do it instead. I thought it was interesting that Ivan Reitman, Joe Medjick, and Michael C. Gross were already looking to do a movie and I wonder what might have happened had they not been looking to do a film. I think that maybe Ackroyd's script came along at just the right time in front of just the right people. Very likely. Uh, it certainly looks that way. Now, as a huge fan of Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Guide, I, I have to admit I would have loved to have seen the timeline where that film happened. At the same time, it would have come at the cost of a landmark film that broke new ground in terms of comedy. And we did eventually get a pretty decent Hitchhiker's Guide from uh, film decades later uh, in any case. So it's just as well it didn't happen at that time. But I think there's a deleted scene you wanted to mention, Mike? There certainly is. The original script showed a romantic relationship between Janine and Egon, but most of it was edited out of the film. But you can still at least see one of those scenes in the special edition DVD. That edition features a deleted scene of Janine giving Egon a coin for luck before he goes off to fight with the other Ghostbusters to fight Gozer. The relationship between Gene and Egon was explored in more detail, however, in the real Ghostbusters animated series from 1986. You know, it's a real shame that they cut the Egon-Janine scene because I think that Egon and Janine are a really cute couple. Uh, Ramis had good chemistry with uh, Annie Potts in the time that they have together on screen. 
still, it, it did make sense to cut that out of the film. And the animated series was probably a better place to explore that relationship. Uh, I have to agree. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that stuff was eventually explored, even if it was not in the film. But let's switch over to talking about the Ghostbusters symbol for a minute. In the script, Aykroyd described the Ghostbusters clothing and the vehicle as bearing a no symbol with a ghost trapped inside of it. The final design fell to art director Michael C. Gross. As the logo would be required for props and sets, it needed to be finalized quickly. And Gross worked with Boss Film Arctic and Creature Design consultant Brent Boats, who drew the final concept. And RGA animated the logo for the film's opening. According to Gross, two versions of the logo exist, with one having Ghostbusters written across the diagonal part of the sign. But Harvey Comics, the creator of Casper the Friendly Ghost, actually sued the producers, claiming that the ghost in the logo was too close to the Casper character Fatso. The court ruled against them, stating that, well, there are, just all, there are only so many ways you can draw a ghost. <laughs> According to Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman, the white ghost in the iconic Ghostbusters logo is called Moogie. You know, when I hear Moogly, I can't help but think of a Moogle from the Final Fantasy games. <laughs> What's even funnier is that the White Ghost really actually does look a little like a Final Fantasy Moogle, but let's move on. Uh, most of uh, Dan Aykroyd's remaining ideas were later tossed aside when director Ivan Reitman became involved with the film. Reitman loved the concept of the script, but he didn't really like some of the details. He didn't think that the future setting would work since he thought that it was too outlandish when placed on top of the paranormal investigator idea. So Reitman proposed a counter idea to, to Aykroyd uh, where the Ghostbusters would be set in the modern day with these three science geniuses going into business for themselves. Um, Reitman also suggested bringing in Harold, Harold Ramis as a co-writer since Ramis had worked with Reitman previously on his earlier films, actually most of them, including Stripes. Uh, Aykroyd uh, agreed to the changes and the movie pivoted more towards what the film ultimately became. But there was one leftover Aykroyd idea still in the script, and that was the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Mike, do you want to talk about how that came together? <laughs> sure thing. Dan Aykroyd describes Mr. Stay Puffed as a cross between the Michelin Man and the Pillsbury Doughboy. He wanted to create a fictional brand mascot that everyone would have grown up with. Also, in the original script, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man appeared on page 20 and was one of several large-scale monsters. According to Ivan Reitman, such a film would have cost at least $300 million in 1984 dollars. Wow, uh, that was well over the budget that Reitman had agreed on with Frank Price, so I can understand why that wouldn't have been workable. But before we move on, um, there was one other influence uh, for Mr. Stay Puft that Dan Aykroyd mentioned. In fact, uh, that was a Canadian marshmallow brand mascot for a company called Angelus Marshmallows. So Stay Puft was a cross between the Angelus mascot as well as the influences that he already cited. Uh, but why don't we talk about how the rewriting process turned out, Mike? You know, that, that thing about the Canadian marshmallow brand mascot actually makes a lot of sense with sense with Aykroyd actually being Canadian. So good call on mm -hmm. that one. But but yes, mm -hmm. let's let's get into the rewriting process. Um, after Harold Ramis was brought on to help rewrite the script, Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, and Ivan Reitman spent three weeks at Martha's Vineyard revising our Aykroyd's original script. Now, 
Bear in mind, that's Martha's Vineyard. So there was probably a lot of wine drinking going on in this process. <laughs> According to Ivan Reitman, there was a lot of discussion in the writing sessions about the vibe between the three leads, but they decided that Harold Ramis' character Egon would be the brains of the group, Dan Aykroyd's Ray would be the heart, and Bill Murray's Peter Bankman was the mouth. <laughs> Harold Ramis also wanted Walter Peck to be a more understated villain than he was in the original script. He thought the bad guys in National Lampoon's Animal House from 1978, which he also co-wrote, were, were just too over the top. That probably worked out for the best since uh, those changes made those movies accessible to a wider audience. As it turned out, Dan Aykroyd was very happy working with Harold Ramis, and Aykroyd felt that they were a great writing team. Uh, the interesting thing about them is that they had very contrasting viewpoints about the paranormal. Aykroyd was a believer, and Ramis was a skeptic, but it probably was that clash of viewpoints that helped the writing process. It helped that both of them had similar ideas when it came to comedy. Both of them came from the same style of Canadian comedy as did Reitman. So the combination of Aykroyd, Reimus, and Reitman ended up bringing the film together in a way that neither of them would have been able to pull off alone. You needed Aykroyd's deep interest in the spiritual, Reimus' skepticism and intellectual approach, and Reitman's ability to pull the right ideas from both of them. Also, as it turns out, Reitman was very good at improvising solutions, but we'll address that when we get to the question of the gatekeeper and Zool. You know, Reitman seemed to know when to dial it back a little bit, too. You know, I mentioned earlier about how Ghost, the Ghostbusters was accessible to kids, and I think Reitman was a big part of why that happened. In the original draft for Bill Murray's character, sexual obscenities were written on Peter Bankman's door. Ivan Reitman wanted to make it a more family-friendly film, so, so the phrase, Bankman burn in hell, was added. <laughs> You know, when Burn in Hell is the more family-friendly version, I suddenly <laughs> want to see what was originally on the door. <laughs> in addition, a lot of characters and lines were rearranged in the process. Probably Ray Stance was the most consistent character between drafts, since Aykroyd always intended to play him. The presence of uh, Harold Ramis created a different kind of character than what they had in mind with Belushi, which is likely why you have a straight-laced scientist like Egon. Finally, Aykroyd admitted that a fair chunk of what he intended for Eddie Murphy, who was probably meant to be Winston Zedmore, got switched over to Bill Murray's Peter Bankman. He felt that Bill Murray really worked better for that role since he was meant to be a more comedy-oriented character. But regardless of how he came about, Winston was more solidified as a character when Ernie Hudson got involved. Uh, Mike, did you want to discuss that? I definitely do, Steve. According to Ernie Hudson, he auditioned five times for the role of Winston Zeddemore and was excited about the part because in an earlier version of the script, Winston had a larger role with a more elaborate backstory as an Air Force demolitions expert. The scene where Janine is interviewing Winston for the job originally began with Winston listing his qualifications. According to Ivan Reitman in the DVD commentary, Winston was an Army veteran, a former paramedic, and a construction worker. Uh, Janine's questioning him about things that he believed was considered a funnier opening, which it was, I will admit that, but I thought it took away from Winston's character building there. Um, in the real Ghostbusters episode, The Brooklyn Triangle from 1988, the Ghostbusters fight spirits on a construction site run by Winston's father, who chides Winston for quitting the construction business to become a Ghostbuster. Plus, the past in the Air Force is something IDW's Ghostbusters comic series utilizes, so at least that stuff about Winston's character made it into the canon somewhere. Anyway, excited about the part, 
Ernie Hudson agreed to the job for half his usual salary, and he complains about that to this day. Uh, the night before shooting began, he was given a new script with a greatly reduced role. Can you imagine that? The night before shooting. The only explanation he got came from director Ivan Reitman, who told him the studio had wanted to expand Bill Murray's role. In truth, Hudson was a last-minute stand-in for Eddie Murphy, who had backed out of the Ghostbusters when he got the lead in Beverly Hills Cop. Although I understand there were issues with affording him anyway. Without Eddie Murphy's big name on the card, the role of his character was significantly reduced. The character of Winston was meant to have joined the team much earlier and would have been around to get slimed at the hotel. When Eddie Murphy declined the role, the script was rewritten to have Winston appear about halfway through the film. That process changed Winston quite a bit, and it is true that they couldn't afford Eddie Murphy. Um, I don't. I didn't know that Winston had uh, such an interesting backstory originally, though. It is really a shame that those details got cut from the film, even though it was a funnier intro to do it the way that they filmed it. But let's get into how uh, Winston's role got reduced in the drafting process. Um, Dan Aykroyd had said that the Winston role was needed because he wanted an outside perspective within the group, someone who offered a more ground-level viewpoint on the ghost-catching. However, uh, as script revisions came in, Winston's role became smaller and lines for Winston were moved over to other characters. Um, he Slimed Me was originally written for Winston, but later on the writers felt like it worked better for Bankman. Uh, Winston also ended up appearing later and later in the script draft. It, it's a shame because I like Winston's character quite a bit, but I think the idea was to focus on the original three Ghostbusters for a good chunk of the film. You know, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe whatever you want. <laughs> you know, you, you bring up the thing about the role of Winston Zeddemore coming along later and that Eddie Murphy's role was going to be Peter Vankman's. But while that is Dan Aykroyd's story, Ivan Reitman says that Murphy's role was always intended to be Winston. So listeners, um, you're actually going to have to decide on that one yourself. Uh, both of them were there, so it's really hard for us to choose uh, one side over the other there. It's hard to say for sure. I mean, we're talking about people who are working off decades-old memories, and they could easily have gotten certain details confused over the years. Not to mention that Reitman is sadly no longer alive to ask now, so we're no longer able to get anything new or definitive from him anymore. But there was another complication, wasn't there, Mike? Yes, there was. And really, it's interesting how well the film came out despite the constant revisions to the script and almost none of the scenes being filmed as they were scripted anyway. Most scenes in the movie had at least one ad lib and a majority of Bill Murray's lines are ad libs, which is why I don't think he committed the script to memory like Ivan Reitman was worried about. But really, everyone took part in the ad-libbing, despite the crazy amount of work that had been put into the script. When Bankman mentions the time Spangler tried to drill a hole in his head, Spangler's response, that would have worked if you hadn't stopped me, was actually ad-libbed by Harold Ramis. When, when Dana is describing Bankman back to him, in the script, the line was, you're more like a car salesman. But Weaver ad-libbed, you're more like a game show host. And really, I think that was better fitting. Uh, but speaking of Sigourney Weaver, I believe you had some more to say about her didn't you steve as it happens i do one thing i found surprising was that the plot hadn't been fully locked in until they cast a gurney weaver the writers including ivan reitman hadn't worked out exactly what the key master and the gatekeeper were presumably those names were included in the script as part of a joke but nobody knew what they meant in terms of the larger story so that ended up being worked out uh, by sigourney weaver when she started suggesting ideas for her character weaver was really struck by the idea of the dog statues and she suggested to Ivan Reitman that she should be turned into a dog. So, she's a dog. 
uh, this this led to the idea of Dana Barrett being possessed by an evil spirit. And then they figured out uh, what the gatekeeper was. After that, they were able to extrapolate all the details about Spook Central, Zool, and Gozer, and what the plan was. You know, I, Sigourney Weaver actually added a fair amount to her character. Uh, Dan Aykroyd and Her Harold Ramis considered making Dana an actress or a model or, or even an alien. That's a bit on the nose. Um, it was Sigourney Weaver's idea to be a musician because she felt that being a musician made her gave her a more softer side or, or even uh, gave her a bit more soul, as she put it. Uh, but speaking of Weaver being casted, let me talk about that for a second. The then unknown Julia Roberts auditioned for the role of Dana Barrett, but was considered too young at 17. And I'm going to have to agree with that. Uh, Daryl Hannah, who was recent, who had recently played the replicant Pris on Blade Runner in 1982. Uh, Denise Crosby, who had, who played Natasha Yar in Star Trek The Next Generation in 1987. And Kelly LeBrock auditioned for the role of Dana Barrett as well, but ended up doing 1984's The Woman in Red. Of course, we know that Sigourney Weaver got this role, but there was some resistance to casting her initially because of the generally serious roles she had played in 1979's Alien and 1982's The Year of Living Dangerously. But Weaver set them straight. She told them about her comedic background at the Yale School of Drama and that she, she wanted to show that side of herself. You mentioned her bringing up the idea about dogs. Well, as part of Sigourney Weaver's audition for her part, she got up on the couch and began walking on all fours and out barking and howling like a dog. <laughs> Reitman knew right then she had to be in the film. <laughs> According to director Ivan Reitman, Sigourney always thought of herself as the Margaret Dumont of the story. She thought the, of the Ghostbusters as the Marx Brothers and that her job was to keep a realistic center to the film and the story. But that is the gatekeeper. Now we must discuss the key master. John Candy turned down the role of Lewis Tully because his ideas for the character were rejected. According to Ivan Reitman in the DVD commentary, among Candy's suggestions was that he wanted the character to have a German accent and have a pair of schnauzer dogs. No one felt the German accent was appropriate for the character. And since there was dog imagery in the movie anyway with the terror dogs, they felt that having Tully own two dogs was just a bit much. Reitman had previously worked with Rick Moranis and sent him a copy of the script. He accepted the role an hour later. Uh, Rick Moranis was then cast as Lewis based on his particular awkward nerd take on the character. Huh. Getting back to Sigourney Weaver, uh, casting director Karen Ray said that they want an actress who had chemistry with Bill Murray. That ended up being one of the main catalysts that got her the part in the end. But nobody was going to say no to casting Ellen Ripley if they could get her, especially in 1984. Um, as for John Candy, it's a shame things didn't work out because that would have been a fun addition if, it, if that had worked. In fact, the early storyboards were drawn with Candy in mind. But yeah, creative differences led to Rick Moranis getting the role and interpreting Lewis in a much different way. And one that really worked out better for the film. Um, in the end, a lot of things were arrived at late in the process. And it's surprising how well the movie turned out under those circumstances. But they managed to make the story work, even with so many 11th hour decisions. That they did. Um, but let's talk some more about the casting process for the film. According to Harold Ramis, he was inspired by the cover of a journal on abstract architecture for Egon's appearance, featuring a man wearing a three-piece tweed suit, wire rim glasses, and his hair standing straight up. The name Egon Spendler was inspired by Egon Donsbach, a foreign exchange student at his high school, and historian Oswald Spangler 
But Harold Ramis was not originally going to play Egon. He only wanted to write the film. So Christopher Walken, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd, and Jeff Goldblum were all considered for the role of Dr. Egon Spangler. But ultimately, Ramis decided to play Dr. Egon Spangler after he felt that he was the best person suited for the role. Harold Ramis made a choice to never smile as Egon in the 1984 Ghostbusters movie, but Egon definitely smiles in the more kid-friendly sequel, Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, I can't see most of those actors really working half as well as Harold Ramis. I guess Christopher Lloyd could have done it, but we basically got that character with Doc Brown in Back to the Future anyway. Uh, Harold Ramis ended up being the exact right person to play Egon, and that's for the best. But there was another great bit of casting, and that is the jerk antagonist of this film. Mike, did you want to talk about Walter Peck? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, William Atherton was chosen for the role of Walter Peck after he had appeared in the Broadway play Broadway. Like, that isn't on the nose. Well, I mentioned earlier that Sigourney Weaver said that she felt like the Margaret Dumont of the group. That particular position was intended for Walter Peck, although it could be that both of them filled that type of role. Um, Atherton said, it can't be funny. I don't find the Ghostbusters in the least bit charming. I have to be outraged. And I think that definitely comes across in the film. After the film's release, though, William Atherton became reviled. Atherton ran into director Ivan Reitman one day, and Atherton was furious about how people treated him as a result of his character. He told Reitman that he couldn't even go into a bar without people wanting to pick a fight with him. In another incident, Atherton was walking down the stretch of 7th Avenue in New York City, which was entirely crowded with school buses, when he heard lots of children shouting at the top of their lungs, Hey, Dickless! <laughs> but he could not have hated all of that too much, as he played an equally detestable asshole in Die Hard just four years later. It's true. This man has no dick. <laughs> <laughs> but William Atherton uh, played a long list of complete douchebags throughout the early 80s and, and um, throughout the 80s and early 90s, and he was great at all of them. Uh, Walter Peck is probably the best remembered one, and, and yeah, Die Hard was great as well. But I misremember him as Doth Dr. Jerry Hathaway from Real Genius, who, where he played a celebrity science professor who was stealing ideas from his students and using them to make a weapon for the military. Atherton is such a good villain actor, and he has a gift for making his character smug and detestable. <laughs> he does do it quite well. In fact, I would rank him up there with Claude Rains as both playing great villains and having very punchable faces. If you want a reference, just ask Callie McClain. <laughs> but let's talk about the Sumerian god Goza the Gozerian for a minute. The character was envisioned as Ivo Shandor, the ghost building's architect who started the original Gozer cult. Ivo Shandor resembled a pale, slender, unremarkable man in a business suit, and the role was originally intended for Paul Rubens, but he turned it down. Ivo Shandor, Shandor ultimately made his appearance in Ghostbusters the video game from 2009, and was portrayed by J.K. Simmons in the Ghost in Ghostbusters Afterlife from 2021. However, when Paul Rubens passed on the idea, Yugoslavian actress uh, Slavica Joven was cast, in the, and the character changed to one inspired by androgynous looks of Grace Jones and David Bowie. But Joven is not the one you hear in the movie. Patty Edwards was uncredited as the voice of Gozer, dubbing over Joven's strong Slavic accent as it came across comedic. In rehearsal, Bill Murray teased Joven about her pronunciation of the line, Jews and berries, because it sounded like Jews and berries to him. And he'd say, there are no Jews and berries here. <laughs> I thought it was Jews and pay the first time I heard it. 
Anyway, I have to say that I love the idea of J.K. Simmons as Evo Shandor. Are you a god? No? Now give me pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> seriously, seriously, though, Simmons is a good actor, and he's a convincing choice. But I will say that I like Slavica Jovan and the brief appearance that she makes as Gozer. I thought that she brought this very unearthly vibe to the character, and it worked, even if her accent might have been a bit thick. Um, but one point that ended up being a sticking point uh, throughout the production was the rights of the Ghostbusters name. Ghostbusters was the original name, but there were legal issues because Filmation, which was owned by Universal, had the rights to the name. So Ghostbusters was the name that Aykroyd, Ramis, and Reitman came up with. Um, but Dan, Dan Aykroyd's original title for the film was Ghost Smashers. Um, working titles for the film include um, Ghost Stoppers and Ghost Blasters uh, during film production. Ghostbusters was the better name, but, but it took some work to secure it because of legal reasons. You know, Ghostbusters really seems to fit more in line with the, the lingo of the day. Uh, the ending Busters specifically, I believe, I believe there was a, I, I personally owned a video game called Blockbuster. And at the same, at, at the same term was used in talking about movies since 1943, not to mention the Dustbuster handheld vacuum that came out in 1979. But, but that is just pure speculation. I don't, I don't personally recall any businesses with smashers, stoppers, or blasters in the title. There may well have been, but I could not name one. I think that says something in and of itself. Anyway, speaking of the Ghostbusters name, I believe you had some more to say on that subject, didn't you, Steve? I do indeed. So let's talk about the other Ghostbusters from Filmation for a moment. Filmation's Ghostbusters were based on a live-action TV show from 1975 featuring a group of bumbling paranormal detectives and an ape. Don't ask. Um, I knew them mainly from a cartoon revival series that came out in 1986 uh, based on the old show, which probably was a reaction to the real Ghostbusters. Nobody uh, remembered or cared about the old show, but because Filmation had the rights of the Ghostbusters name, it ended up causing problems from the film production. Now, Columbia did have the rights of the name Ghost Breakers, uh, which was based on the old Bob Hope paranormal comedy from 1940. And as an aside, I actually covered the Ghost Breakers for the Cinema Crusaders podcast a while back. So go ahead and check that out. It is a fun film and it's worth watching. Um, so Columbia pressed Reitman to film two versions of uh, Ghostbusters, one as Ghostbusters and one as Ghost Breakers. That issue ended up being settled by two things. One is that the crew got really tired of filming two versions of the movie and they called the studio while the crowd at Spook Central was chanting Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. That ended up convincing the studio to lay off. Uh, but the final nail of the coffin uh, came when former Columbia president Frank Price, who left after his disagreements with uh, Columbia's parent company, Coca-Cola, over uh, movie making, became the head of Universal. The first thing that Price did when he took over Universal was order Filmation to let Columbia use the rights of the Ghostbusters name. Uh, Price was a big believer in Ivan Reitman and in Ghostbusters, and he did absolutely everything he could to support the film, even after leaving uh, Columbia Pictures. Also, as an aside, this is why the 1980s Ghostbusters cartoon is called The Real Ghostbusters. They created that name to separate themselves from Filmation's Ghostbusters. But after a while, the Filmation version faded into obscurity, and as far as I know, there's never been any rights issues over the name since then. Um, I doubt anybody even remembers the Filmation version today. So the 80s Ghostbusters have become the definitive Ghostbusters over time. You know, that is a whole lot of trouble for the name of a film. But seeing how perfect the name turned out to be, it would seem that it was all worth it in the end. Those other names just would not have worked as well. 
But you mentioned the real Ghostbusters, and I came across something that connects the tone of that animated series and Ghostbusters 2 together. As Ghostbusters was originally intended as a movie for adults, at least until Reitman had his say, the cast and crew were actually surprised to find out that children loved the film as a fan fun fantasy adventure of scientists battling supernatural threats with cool backpack weapons. It led to the cartoon spin-off The Real Ghostbusters in 1986, as you mentioned, Steve, but it also led to the sequel Ghostbusters 2 in 1989, playing down the, the original film's adult elements like smoking. In an interview, Joe Medjick re remarked that Ghostbusters really shows this age by the amount of people who are seen smoking in it. He added that all that had to change by the time Ghostbusters 2 came out, and no one smokes in that film. <laughs> but we did ecstasy, added Harold Ramis, who was at the interview with him. <laughs> I guess it's better than spores, molds, and fungus. Um, seriously, this goes back a little to my pet peeve with cutting out smoking when it works better to show that smoking has consequences. But I guess that's easy to do in a film about trapping dead people, but I digress. Um, from here, let's talk about the film itself. Um, they started with a really nice cold open here that sets up the situation. The librarian going down into the basement and then running into the library ghost is just textbook and it works. The practical effects are really well done in this scene too, but it shows what the movie is about and it sets the tone for the film nicely. And honestly, I feel a bit sorry for the library ghost. I mean, she just wants to read in peace and hear all these humans trying to cut into her reading time. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts on the opener and the library ghost, Mike? <laughs> Seriously, don't they know you're not supposed to talk in the library? I mean, where was she supposed to read? <laughs> Anyway, I, I can agree with all of that. Uh, this is one of several scenes in the movie where the effects really stand the test of time. It looks really good, even 39 years later, and that is impressive. Also, Alice Drummond, the actress who played the librarian, hit just the right tone for, for Ghostbusters. And I think she is a big part of why that opening scene really sets the stage. She had just the right balance of over-the-top action with the response of seeing the library ghost and then the serious reactions when she was running through the library trying to escape. All in all, I, I can't imagine a more perfect opening for Ghostbusters. Neither can I. It has just the right amount of spooky and comedic. And that's not an always an easy thing to balance out. But this film does it better than anybody else that I can think of. So this next bit's going to be a bit nitpicky. And I get that this is a comedy, but this is one point that struck me about Bankman. So Bankman uses his experiments to pick up college girls. I, I don't know what higher education was like back in 1984, but I can tell you this. If Bankman was a professor today and that kind of thing was going on, it'd potentially be a fireable offense, depending on the institution. At the very least, he'd be dealing with an investigation for possible misconduct. I can't imagine too many reputable universities putting up with that even in 1984. So I found the ESP research scene to be a bit sketchy, but you know what? I can let it go. I'll admit that the scene is funny and it establishes Peter's character pretty well. But I think it's fair to say that probably none of the writers ever worked in higher education. They never studied. <laughs> nice i like that quote there actually steve you are right about that not going down in 1984 at least to my knowledge but that experiment with the cards and electric shock seems to have been based on two different actual experiments from the 30s and the 60s 
The most obvious one is the Rhine experiments that were related to ESP research in the 1930s by Duke psychologist J.B. Rhine. Rhine used Zener cards, uh, a deck of 25 cards with each having one of five possible symbols to see if test subjects could sense which card a test administrator was looking at without seeing it themselves. But the shocks were actually from a different experiment called the Milgram experiment, which involved subjects giving electric shots to strangers who were other subjects when they were not able to recite a list of words. On the surface, this was said to be a study on memory and learning, but in truth, Milgram was investigating how far people would go in submission to authority. Harold Ramis jokes that the scene in the movie was a test to see how well audience could accept a hero who gave unfair electric shocks to his subjects. According to Ivan Reitman, Bill Murray loved the scene. <laughs> Lastly, though, I would like to point out what I assume was either a mistake on the part of the writers or a reflection of Peter Venkman's con man nature. He says his tests are about seeing the effects of negative reinforcement on ESP abilities. But that is not correct. That's not even what negative reinforcement is. Negative reinforcement is the encouragement of certain behaviors by removing or avoiding negative outcome or stimuli. Bankman is clearly adding negative outcome and stimuli. Uh, but I did like that guy saying, I'll tell you what the effect is. It's pissing me off. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I, I felt bad for that guy. I got to say. I mean, even when he gets the card right, he still ended up getting shocked. You, you could tell Peter was just trying to get rid of him so they could have alone time with the girl. But to your point, it does make sense if they base the experiment on some very old real world experiments. Again, I doubt some of these techniques would have been accepted in academia, even in the 80s, but at least they put some thought into it. And hey, the rule of comedy forgives a lot. But I think you had another point you wanted to make about Bankman, Mike? Yes, I do. And this one kind of surprised me. When interviewing Alice, the librarian, Peter asks her if she's currently menstruating. The shocked head librarian says, what does that have to do with anything? Peter replies, back off, man. I'm a scientist. In parapsychology, there is some correlation between menstrual cycles and latent telekinetic powers. From a psychological from a psychological standpoint, Alice may have been going through menopause, which in very rare cases can cause psychotic breaks or blackouts. Peter was trying to determine if Alice might have actually caused the disturbance herself, either physically or through her psychic powers. That does help clarify the scene a bit. I got the sense that Bankman was messing around, probably perhaps because he was skeptical about the whole case. But investigating possible psychic activity could well be possible, too. I, I do wonder how much of what Bankman does is serious scholarship, how much is a hustle, and how much of it is a joke to him. I like that Bill Murray really makes you wonder with the way he plays Bankman. There are certainly a few points in the film where I do wonder uh, about because of how he is played. I, I think you're definitely right that it adds to Peter Venkman's character that Murray plays him somewhat ambiguously. Uh, but let's 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 keep talking about what happened at the library if we could. Later in the library, they discover ectoplasmic residue on the drawers. In parapsychology, ectoplasm is assumed to be the substance that the ghosts are made of. This is based on documented medium sessions realized in the late 19th and early 20th century. The documentation described ectoplasm as a white and bright substance emanating from the body of a medium when he or she was in contact with a ghost. So it was not the green slime we see in the movie, but I imagine rec replicating ectoplasm on screen would not have been cheap. And 
as it as it is the schedule for getting the movie into theaters for its release date in summer of 1984 was so tight director ivan reitman said that the final print included incomplete special effect shots and errors that were visible like visible wires but remarkably people didn't care so the scene probably would have just been one thing in a pile that was never done yeah a lot of that is due to the uh rush nature of the uh production but uh, when the Ghostbusters did confront the library ghost, I just love that uh, Ray's first thought is just to try to grab her. It's a hilarious scene and it works, but it also really speaks to who Ray and Egon are because these are both very smart people who end up occasionally doing things that are really dumb. With Egon, we see it in Vigman's anecdote about Egon trying to drill a hole through his head. That would have worked if you hadn't stopped me. <laughs> Egon gets stuck in his own head sometimes and 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 he misses sometimes how ridiculous some of his ideas are. But with Ray, I think he just gets so caught up in his own excitement at discovering this cool new thing that he doesn't think about what he's doing. Ray has a certain childlike aspect to his character that sometimes run away with him. And I think we saw that come across in this scene. I, I think this is why they really need guys like Bankman and Winston to hold them back because they have real world common sense that Egon and Ray sometimes lack. That. That that's some nice character insight there, Steve. Uh, building on that, um, Ray has all of the nomenclature down as far as parapsychology goes, having the technical names for each thing they come across, and he's also able to cite the place and the date of each event. Uh, to say that he was obsessed with parapsychology would be an understatement. I think that the chance to actually see a real apparition with his own eyes was a huge deal, and he was obviously excited. <laughs> I loved his line. Listen, do you smell something? <laughs> Dan Aykroyd clearly brought in his own interest in the paranormal and the race character, and it shows. You can't fake the light in his eyes when he talks about that stuff. Uh, Ray looks like a kid at Christmas every time he discovers something weird, and it's great. Now, I have to ask something, Mike. Am I the only one who got an exorcist vibe from the Dana Barrett possession scenes? Like we talked about earlier, it was Sigourney Weaver who originally had the idea of Dana dealing with a case of possession. But it might be that once Ivan Reitman realized what they were doing with Dana, the writers decided to do a riff on the exorcist. I didn't originally notice this when I first saw the film, but looking back at it, they leaned into some elements of the original exorcist. Uh, Dana floating several feet above the bed echoes a similar scene where Regan floats above the covers. The physical changes and the voice changes between Regan and Dana aren't too different either. Both are possessed by demonic entities from ancient cultures. Pazuzu in Regan's case and Zul with Dana. Zul even sounds a bit like Pazuzu thinking about it. So, Mike, do you think I'm off base with the Exorcist connection or do you think there's something to this? Actually, I, I hadn't noticed that before, but... I definitely think you're onto something there. The Exorcist was still very much a major part of the then current pop culture. So using references like those that immediately call back to a similar moment is a great way to add weight to a scene without needing to explain a lot. So to answer your question, not only do I think you're onto something there, I think that was brilliant on their part. It adds a bit of scary to the comedy. And and that would not be the only film that they would draw on for Dana's possession. The shot of the lights coming through the door in Dana's kitchen was inspired by 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ivan Reitman said that if Spielberg can do those lights, I can do those lights. And we'll do them in a different kind of way. Also, Harold Ramis says that the scene with the arms coming out of the chair to grab Dana is a 
scariest one for kids who watch the film. And I, I can agree with that. Uh, it was scary for me in 1984. <laughs> the demonic voice of Dana and Zool was actually performed by director Ivan Reitman. Yeah, that was scary for me in 1984 as well. Now, it's really interesting that they played up the Spielberg influence, but that makes sense. I mean, he was always good at making things creepy while keeping it friendly to the younger audience. So that was a good call. Now, if we have a minute, I'd like to briefly mention Ray Parker Jr. and the Ghostbusters main theme song. I mean, this, the song is iconic, and you think of Ghostbusters immediately on hearing the first few notes. But it, take, uh, it took Ray Parker a long time to come up with the right words. Uh, he knew the melody and the sound that he was aiming for, but the studio asked Parker to include the Ghostbusters name in the lyrics, and he couldn't find a way to do it until the very last minute. Uh, Parker had came up with uh, Who You Gonna Call after watching the We're Ready to Believe You commercial. After he figured that out, the song fell into place immediately, and he quickly sent out a draft tape. The, the studio loved it and gave it the stamp of approval, and the Ghostbusters theme was born. That is an iconic song, and it is easily recognizable in the first few notes, as you say. But I think there was another influence on Ray Parker Jr.'s song, and that is Huey Lewis and the News, who actually turned down an offer to write and record a theme song for Ghostbusters. And that, that tells you that the studio was already thinking about their sound, so keep that in mind. It is no wonder that after hearing Who You Gonna Call, Huey Lewis and the News later sued Ray Parker Jr. for plagiarism, citing the similarities between Who You Gonna Call and their earlier hit, I Want a New Drug, from their sports album, released in January 1984. I Want a New Drug was a very popular song on MTV and the radio. It would have been hard not to have heard it even accidentally. Ray Parker Jr.'s song came out in June of 1984 after six months of I Want a New Drug playing everywhere. And while the songs are not exact, you know, they're there are some different chord sequences and different refrains and, and even a different bridge. But I do I do feel like one just cannot deny the very obvious similarities there. But do you have any thoughts on this, Steve? You know, that sounds more like a question for Patrick Bateman. <laughs> um, <laughs> while, while I'm a huge fan of Huey Lewis and the News, I can't honestly say that I ever made the connections with the Ghostbusters theme before now. I, I'm not sure why. It could just be that Parker and Lewis are very distinctly different voices. And I was a new drug. I want a new drug. It was never like a song I listened to all that much. Um, that having been said, it does make sense the way you explain it. If the studio actually wanted something in the vein of a Lou Huey Lewis song, it makes sense that that's what they would have gone with. I mean, so your take sounds likely to me. Awesome. I can totally see why that would not have occurred to you before with the Huey Lewis song not being a big favorite with you like it is with me. And there is no denying that Ray Parker Jr. sounds nothing like Huey Lewis. Uh, but let's talk about the Ghostbusters and their equipment for a minute. Ivan Reitman mentions he sees the Ghostbusters as hobbyists who had made their own equipment from items that they had laying around. If you look closely during the scene where Egon is testing Lewis, Lewis is wearing a colander with a head on his head with lots of wiring coming out of it. In the storyboards, included in the gift booklet for the two DVD set. The guns for the proton packs were actually wands. They were long sticks with a ball on the end. Ghost, the Ghostbusters fired them by flicking their wrists as a magician would, pointing their wands at the ghosts, saying, Expelliarmus! No. Uh, the wands were changed to their laser guns to fit the idea of the Ghostbusters creating their own gear from pr practical equipment. Yeah, I can't see the Ghostbusters cobbling together unlicensed nuclear accelerators from parts lying around in their garage. <laughs> though, though, in fairness, I do think it makes sense that Ray and Egon would be building a lot of do-it-yourself inventions from random items. 
it wasn't uncommon at the time to buy random stuff from Radio Shack and use those things to build home inventions. And I could see Ray and Egon building together random devices on the side just for the fun of it. So that accounts for the little toys like the headset Lewis wears or the detector gear that uh, Peter uses at the da Dana's apartment, which is probably where the wands came in. Um, I do I could see those being built out of over-the-counter parts. But the big ticket items like the proton packs and the containment units probably would have required materials that are more expensive and difficult to acquire. Oh, definitely. There is no doubt about that. I am no expert on this, but I imagine making a backpack-sized positron collider would have taken some very hard to get materials and likely would have cost a fair amount of that third mortgage Ray took out on his parents' house. Especially when you talk about building the proton collider and the traps and the containment unit, like you mentioned. I, I am basing this off of the difficulty in making a superconducting super collider like they have in Texas or the Hadron Collider, both of which take up a significant amount of space. But let's switch gears over to the stuff that didn't end up making it into the movie. There were several scenes that were storyboarded or written that were either cut or never actually made it into the film. These scenes included Egon testing the proton pack, which was charged by being plugged into a wall socket, and the proton collider melted the plug. <laughs> there was another scene where the models, uh, where a model's mink coat came to life on a runway, and that that was actually later uh, reused in Ghostbusters 2 from 1989, uh, with with the woman on the street where her fur coat turned into turned alive and ran down the street. Uh, several. <laughs> Shots in the sequence where Bakeman, Stance, and Spangler are thrown off campus were cut. More scenes of Lewis roaming around New York City as a key master were also cut. In one such scene, Lewis encounters three muggers in Central Park and breathes fire on them. <laughs> in another scene, he sniffs store windows, then meets a prostitute. When he asks if she's the gatekeeper, she thinks it's a sexual come-on and says yes. So Lewis grabs her and yells, Zool! And plunges his face into her breast, causing her to get upset. <laughs> It's probably for the best that those scenes didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. Not that they aren't good scenes or, or that they wouldn't be funny, but they were probably cut because they weren't necessary to the overall story and they may have dragged down the pacing of the film. Uh, Ivan Reitman's the kind of director who tends to be exacting in what he wants um, in his movies in that way. Uh, also, as an aside, many of the scenes used in the movie were done in single takes because they had to get the movie out quickly and they didn't have a lot of time to do a lot of repeated takes. So a lot of the work in the film ended up being done in the editing room. Yeah, I'm actually a bit surprised that at least Reitman was not more aware of what they were facing when they agreed to the deadline, having made films before. But I understand that the special effects were a lot more difficult than they had imagined. But speaking of Reitman, in the middle of the film's initial release, to keep interest going, Ivan Reitman ran a trailer that was basically the commercial of the Ghostbusters used in the movie, uh, but the 555 number was replaced with a 1-800 number, allowing people to actually call in. Callers got a recorded message of Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd saying something to the effect of, hi, we're out catching ghosts right now. They got 1,000 calls per hour, 24 hours a day for several weeks. I actually didn't remember that, but that is really cool. I have no doubt that the line was flooded in the early weeks of the film's release. But speaking of Bill Murray, he was known for ad-libbing a fair amount of his lines. They did quite a few versions of the scene where Murray walks out of the hotel dining room after catching Slimer, and Murray ad-libbed those lines, including the final version. But I think there were other Murray ad-libs that you wanted to mention, Mike? 
Yes, there is. And, and these turned out to be more than just funny lines. The phrase, this chick is toast, was, was first coined by Bill Murray in this movie. And a 2002 edition of the Oxford English Dictionary actually credits Bill Murray's ad lib, this chick is toast, as the origin of toast in the sense that a person is, that is defunct, dead, finished, or in serious trouble. Another popular Murray line, which would also appear in other films, was nice shooting, Tex. The movie's line, well, there's something you don't see every day, was voted number 19 of the 100 greatest movie lines by Premiere in 2007. I can believe that easily. Ghostbusters is endlessly quotable, and it's easily one of the most quotable films of all time. So before we bring the episode to a close, Mike, I have a question. How is Elvis? And have you seen him lately? <laughs> but no, no, I have a slightly more serious question to ask. Uh, do you have a favorite Ghostbuster? And if so, who would be your pick? I think I think my favorite used to be Bankman. You know, I'm a wisecracker, as you know. Uh, so I like mm -hmm. that about his character. And characters like that are always easy for me to relate to. But after going over this episode, I find myself liking the geek of the group, and that is Ray. Maybe it has to do with knowing how much Aykroyd is really into this stuff, but as I mentioned earlier, I just love his font of geek knowledge when it comes to parapsychology and the paranormal. His enthusiasm is a big selling point. I truly got the Richard Feynman spirit from him, that he genuinely loves to acquire as much knowledge and insight into what he loves and simply loves to learn simply for the sake of learning. You know, I nearly chose Ray as well when I first thought about this question. I mean, Ray is a really likable character, and I dig his childlike sense of wonder about everything, so I totally get where you're coming from. But for me, this is honestly not an easy question to answer. I, I really like all of them in different ways. You'd think I'd lead to Egon or Ray, and they do appeal to me in many ways, but really I lean more to Peter Venkman the more I think about it. As a kid, I was more of a Venkman fan because I liked his deadpan sense of humor, and that's still true, but there's more to it now. Looking back at the film now, I realize that Peter has the strongest character arc in the movie. He starts off as a guy who doesn't take much seriously, and he's just looking for an angle. He doesn't really seem to believe in anything, and he sees the paranormal as a way to pick up girls and get university funds. But after starting up the Ghostbusters, Peter grows into a more serious businessman who puts the city and other people ahead of himself. He still has that hustle in him, but when it counts, he'll put his life on the line for his friends and for his town. But anyway, did you have any final thoughts on the film? I do. When someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I, I have been a huge Ghostbusters fan for 38 years, and I will be one until I die. Some of the special effects did not age well, but many of them still hold up. And the ones that appear aged take nothing away from the experience of rewatching it. As I mentioned back in the beginning, I rewatch Ghostbusters almost every year on Ghostbusters Day, and I truly enjoy it every time. And the lines still crack me up, even having watched the film so many times. All, all in all, Ghostbusters is near and dear to my heart as far as childhood favorites go, and I don't think that will ever change. That's honestly why the 2016 reboot was so repugnant to me. The 1984 film is an absolute classic that managed to put all the right people together at just the right time in their careers. I think this movie would have been different just a few years later, and the balance might have been off. Ghostbusters is a comedy, but there are some serious scenes about the paranormal that, if not for the soundtrack, could have been much scarier. It is that blend of seriousness and comedy that makes this film fit so well. Awesome, and I definitely agree that they caught lightning in a bottle with this one in a way that's hard to recapture. 
Now, I'll be honest, um, for a long time, I was reluctant to watch a lot of childhood favorites once I got older. Uh, there are certain magic to films like Ghostbusters that have they have if you first watch them as a kid. With some films, you see them later in life, or at least I did, and then some of the charm wasn't there anymore. That never happened with Ghostbusters. This movie holds up just as well now as it did back when I first saw it, and in some ways, it's even better because you see it in a different light. It, it's a rare kind of film that can do that and still be funny and still deliver a fun, entertaining adventure at the same time. This movie caught lightning in a bottle, and we, we definitely see with the attempts to follow up on its success that that's been very, very difficult to recapture. But since this episode's not about those films, uh, we'll go ahead and leave the discussion at that. Uh, so thank you for joining Mike and I on ORP as we look back on a beloved classic. And it's always fun sharing these experiences together. And as always, uh, thanks to our patrons for making this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.